I declare to you this morning upon the authority of the word of God that our Lord Jesus Christ has fully purchased salvation for all who believe. And folks, this is glorious good news. It's the greatest news that you will ever hear. You see, although we were created in the image and likeness of God, we in Adam were plunged into sin. And each of us has willfully sinned against the Holy One, the one that is perfectly holy and just, and who by his nature demands punishment for sin, even everlasting death. Yet God in his grace sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, promised long ago. And he willingly came to give his life a ransom for many, to bear the curse that we earned, to suffer in our place. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is salvation. He is the rescuer. He is the deliverer of all who believe. And salvation in him is a complete salvation not only from the penalty of sin, but from its presence and in its stain, so that one day we will be glorified with the glory that belongs to Christ. Sin and all its consequences will be gone forever. And all we will know will be the goodness and the blessings of God. You see, salvation is of God from beginning to end. It is the gospel of God, as we see in the book of Romans, it is his gospel. And there should never be any attempt to add to anything that he has done because it is finished. The work of salvation is complete to reject that perfect work, to try to add anything to what Christ has done as a means of gaining righteousness is to reject God and his glorious gospel. In the epistle to the Galatians, Paul writes with righteous anger, confronting the Judaizers and those who attempt to add anything to Christ's finished work. In chapters 1 and 2, he defends the gospel with apostolic authority. In chapters 3 and 4, he defends the gospel with Old Testament context. You see, the sinner has always been justified by faith alone. And then in chapters 5 and 6, where we're at now, he defends the gospel with life-changing evidence. You see, the gospel of grace had transformed the lives of the Galatian believers. This had come not by the work of the flesh, but by the work of the Spirit. Not in keeping the law, but with God's gracious gift purchased through the work of Christ. In Galatians 5, 1, Paul declares that we are free in Christ, free from the law, free from sin, and therefore free from death. He commands believers to stand firm in that freedom and never again be subject to a yoke of slavery. Never try to do anything to add to what God's done as a means of righteousness, as a means by which we are justified. Then in verses 2 through 6, Paul mounts, in a sense, an all-out assault on the Judaizers, saying that Christ is no benefit for those who receive circumcision as a means of righteousness. And after all, they are obligated to keep the whole law. You want to be righteous through circumcision? You are obligated to keep the law in every point, and no man can do that. He also says that they have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace in verse 4. 
verses 5 and 6, we see that the hope of righteousness is exclusive for those who are in Christ through the Spirit by faith. And this leaves all who add to the precious work of Christ without hope, without the hope of righteousness. Understand these Judaizers were not pagans who rejected Christ altogether. They believed that Jesus is the Messiah, but their faith in Christ was not enough that one must enter Judaism. One must get circumcised and keep the requirements of the law. So today we pick up in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, where the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross would have been abolished. I wish, verse 12, that those who are upsetting you would even mutilate themselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we give you glory this morning for the salvation that's in Christ and in Christ alone. It's by your grace alone. It is through faith alone. It is all of you, and it is the complete salvation. And God, we rejoice in that, and we look ahead to the hope of righteousness, the hope of glorification, in which even the consequences and the stain of sin will be gone forever. And we will receive the inheritance. We will share in that inheritance that belongs only to Christ, all by your grace. And so this morning, we give you praise and thanksgiving. God, we know who we are. We, we know who we are. We know that we are sinners and that we've fallen short. And it's only by your grace. So we rejoice this morning. And we give thanks to you. God, we ask that you use your word in our hearts that we might be set apart unto you, that we might be a little bit more conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. For we, by your spirit in us, desire to be like him, to walk as he walked, to be holy as he is holy. So, God, may you accomplish that by your spirit in our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is Paul's strongest rebuke of heretics that he makes in any of his writings. And in these verses, he identifies the sinful character of these Judaizers and the results of it. Notice first in verse 7, false teachers are hinderers of the Christian race. He writes in verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The Judaizers did not benefit those running the Christian race. Rather, they hindered the Christian life in those who were listening to them. Remember back in verse 5, Paul used the first person plural pronoun, we, to include himself when he writes, for we through the spirit by faith are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. You see, this is true of every believer. We have that hope, that complete salvation that we long for. But in verse 7, he transitions to the second person plural pronoun, you. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
It was the Galatian believers that had been hindered. Now, notice here that the Christian life is a run. It is a race, in other words. And we see this in at least three other biblical texts. One such passage we find in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer writes this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangle us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. In the book of Hebrews, it's a race that can be hindered by sin or by anything that weighs us down. In Galatians, Paul simply refers to the Judaizers as hindering the race of the Galatians, and they were doing such through their teaching of false doctrine, of adding works to the work of Christ. The Galatians were no longer running the Christian race well. They were still running, but they were not running well. They were no longer obeying the truth as they once had. By listening to the Judaizers, they were being hindered in the Christian race. Instead of fixing their eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith, they had been distract, distracted by a works-based theology, a teaching that drew their attention away from the glory of Christ to that of their own flesh, their own ability to appease God or to become more righteous before him by their own efforts. But what does Paul mean by obeying the truth? This con concept is used often in a salvific or a saving way, but it's also a command. It's used as referring to salvation, obeying the gospel, obeying the truth, but it's also when related to the gospel, it is a command. You see, the gospel is a command. It's not a suggestion. We're accountable for what we do with the gospel of God's grace. We're accountable to repent and believe the gospel. But obedience to the truth, obedience to the gospel is not just a one-time act. Commonly, we see in the gospels this obedience as an ongoing practice for the believer. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven B and eight A, or eight, verse eight, actually all of verse eight. The apostle Paul writing to those, writing to those in Thessalonica said, the Lord Jesus will come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But obey here is a present active participle and it's best translated and to those not obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's present tense. It's ongoing. It's not just a one-time act. Through regeneration, God empowers ongoing obedience to the gospel. We see something similar in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of an entrance we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and wait for the Son from heaven. Turn to God is aorist indicative. It is a past tense, in other words, and serve is present tense. It's ongoing. You see, saving faith obeys the gospel. It turns from, it turns from idols to serve the true and living God. 
It turns actually from everything that comes between us and trusting in Jesus Christ, whether it's willful sin, self-worship, self-interest, Satan, who is the God of this evil world system, and it turns as well from good works as a means of righteousness. It turns from trusting anything that we can do to trusting in Christ, although regeneration and justification occur basically simultaneously, obedience to the gospel is ongoing. Obedience to the gospel continually dies to sin and lives for God. We continue continue to serve a living and true God and wait for his son, patiently wait for his son from heaven. You see, this new life is like a race. And the finish line is glorification It is a complete salvation in Jesus Christ. But the Galatian believers had been hindered. So who had hindered them? Consider this. These hinderers were not atheists. They were not agnostics. They were not of any pagan religion. These were professing Christians who added works to faith as the sole instrument for salvation, for justification. They were the Judaizers, and one particular man was hindering the Galatians. He was hindering their Christian race, hindering them from running well in the Christian life. But what was the motive of these Judaizers? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 6, it was actually a combination of pride and an attempt to avoid persecution. He writes in 612, as many as are wanting to make a good showing in the flesh, these are trying to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Make a good showing in the flesh. There's pride. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done to appease God, to earn his righteousness. But they were also attempting to avoid persecution. Now, think of this. Think of this for a Jew. While it was bad enough for a Jew to trust in Jesus as the Messianic Lord, it would bring far greater criticism, even persecution, if they abandoned their Judaism altogether. So the Judaizers practiced the requirements of the law, and they demanded that their converts do the same. They were trying to convert these true believers back into Judaism. But what did Paul have to say? In verses 2 through 6, we saw it earlier. To these who receive circumcision as a means of righteousness, he says to them, Christ is no benefit to you. You are obligated to keep the whole law, which they knew they couldn't do. You have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace. And while believers, true believers, eagerly await the hope of righteousness, you have no such future. You have no such reward. And here in verse 7, we see that these Judaizers who had added works to faith were hindering believers from obeying the truth of the gospel, from living out the good news in their everyday lives. Notice secondly in verse 8, they do not represent God. This persuasion, he writes, is not from him who calls you. What a contrast with the Apostle Paul. 
with what it says in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul was an apostle not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. But the Judaizers were not sent from God. They were man sent. Also consider this. The scriptural writings of all biblical authors were inspired by God. Not only were these biblical authors sent by and from God, their writings, their scripture writings are God-breathed. God is the source of every scripture. Paul was totally distinct from the Judaizers. But these teachers, nor their, per, their persuasion is from him who calls you, he says. Their persuasion comes from who? It comes from the God of this world, the great deceiver. That's where their teaching comes from. Notice also Paul is not talk Paul is talking about the effectual call when he writes him who calls you. They're not from him who calls you. You are the called. Remember those whom he predestined, he called. It's a call to salvation, ultimately to glorification. Called is from the Greek word kaleo. Now listen to that, kaleo. We are the what? The ecclesia. We're the called out ones. We're called out of the world into an assembly, a congregation, a community of believers, into a divine family. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. But this call, make sure you understand it. It's not a wooing. It is an efficacious call. In other words, it produces its desired result, which is God's purpose in calling us out of this world into his body, the body of Christ. And again, even out of the world into a spiritual community with a spiritual, eternal, guaranteed future. Romans 8.30, I read it last week. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you have been called by God, if you're one of those called out of this world into the body of Christ, you are guaranteed a complete salvation, even glorification. Those who trust in Christ alone through faith alone are the called out ones. But God had not called the Judaizers nor given them their works-based evil message. Rather, he pronounced judgment upon them, as we'll see in a moment. Notice thirdly, they contaminate the body of Christ, verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. See, in Scripture, leaven pictures sin, but it also pictures permeation. A little leaven leavens. It permeates the whole lump. But here it specifically pictures the permeation of false teaching. It's the false gospel of faith plus works. The Judaizers were much like the Pharisees, really, who also held to a works-based interpretation of Judaism, a works-based means of righteousness. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 6, 16, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This was a warning to his disciples, lest they be contaminated with their works-based teaching 
and it must be a warning to us as well. Paul also warned Timothy about false teachers in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 through 18. Paul writes to Timothy, but avoid godless and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. You see, what you believe affects how you live. It's unavoidable. Verse 17, and their word will spread like gangrene among them, or Hamanias and Philetus, who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. So here we have another example of false teaching. Their word will spread like gangrene. It's like leaven. It permeates the body. In this case, the body of Christ, Hermeneus and Philetus, apparently taught a form of Gnosticism. They focused on the spiritual and denied the importance of physical reality. They said the resurrection has already taken place, probably saying that they had already been resurrected spiritually and yet denying the future physical resurrection promised clearly in the word of God. So false teaching permeates the church, and it also contaminates it. Folks, it is destructive, and we must guard ourselves against it. It is a serious issue, and it's not just for the sake of truth, although that's important, but also because we, what we believe affects how we live. It's in that ongoing obedience to the gospel. It's living out the gospel. That's what it hinders. That's what it contaminates. You can be sure any person not living out the gospel, either they do not know the truth or they do not really believe it. Every Christian who is not running the Christian race has a theological problem in some respect. The teachings of Judaizers had permeated and contaminated, corrupted the Galatian churches so that their lives were being affected. They were not running the Christian race well. They were not obeying the truth as they once had. Now notice, fourthly, they will face divine judgment in verse 10. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. The Galatians were deserting him, as it says earlier in the book. They were deserting him. They were in the process of this, deserting him who had called them by his grace. They had been bewitched by these Judaizers. But clearly, we see here, they had not fully adopted a works-based gospel, that you will adopt no other view than the gospel of grace, in other words. Paul's purpose in writing this epistle was to rescue the Galatians from a works-based righteousness, to strengthen their faith in Christ alone, and to bring them to maturity, to sanctification. But while Paul pleaded with them, he had confidence in God's work in them, didn't he? He knew that in he knew that it was God who was at work in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 1.19, Paul was not writing some, he was not writing with some fatalistic mentality. We see that here. Colossians 2.10, he wrote, in him you have been made complete. He knew that salvation would be completed. It's just like in Romans 8.30, 
where we have already been declared glorified. You see, Paul knew that God's sovereign purpose is carried out through the ministry of God's servant. It's often carried out, I should say, through the ministry of God's servant. But ultimately, God accomplishes his purpose and his work in us. Notice verse 10b. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. You see, this is a serious issue when you stand up and you proclaim anything other than a gospel of grace. Paul had apparently been informed that there was one particular Judaizer that was in that area that was disturbing the Galatian churches. And Paul calls him out. Although he doesn't name names, in a sense, he names names here. He was, this Judaizer was disturbing them. The Greek word translated disturbing means to stir up, to trouble, to agitate. This man's teaching was causing confusion. It was troubling them. So how are we to respond to false teachers and their false doctrines? There's many passages that we could look at, but just three. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you as sheeps, come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. John writes, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So not only beware of them, but test the spirits. Evaluate these teachings by the word of God. And then Romans 16, 17 Paul writes, now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumblings contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. You see, we are to have no fellowship with the works of darkness. We are to reprove them, the false teachers and their teaching. But here's the bigger question in this context. How does God respond to these false teachers? What does he say in this verse? But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Jude tells us that false teachers are marked out for condemnation. Jude verse 4, he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, think of this. False teachers are a part of God's sovereign decree. They are God's judgment upon those with itching ear, those who won't to be appeased, who want to hear pleasing things, who want to hear fleshly things. They are the judgment of God upon people that have those evil desires. But they, at the same time, although they're decreed by God, they're part of God's glorious plan, they are responsible for their teaching, and they bring destruction upon themselves. We see this in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, that false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive her- heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. By introducing destructive heresies, 
they bring swift destruction upon themselves. God will judge. But we would be amiss if I did not remind you of a verse I've already alluded to. Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord says through the Apostle Paul, if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, destroyed forever for God's sake, you see. False teachers will face divine, eternal judgment. You see, the Lord is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, and you can be sure he will protect and defend his sheep and provide for his sheep. Notice, fifthly, they persecute true teachers. Verse 11, but I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross would have been abolished. See, circumcision, in a sense, represented the old covenant law. If Paul is still preaching circumcision, if he's still preaching the law, why was he still being persecuted? The fact that he no longer preached circumcision had brought about the persecution. And most of his persecution came from who? Not Gentiles, but from Jews. You see, Paul would never preach circumcision. He would never preach the law as a part of the gospel. To do so would, to, would be to, as Paul says earlier in this epistle, to nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. And you know, we could say it like this. If we can earn a little bit of our salvation by law keeping, by circumcision or anything that we can do, why can't we do more and earn all of it? You see, if we can earn even a little bit of righteousness by doing something, Christ died needlessly. Notice the second half of the verse. Then the stumbling block or the stumbling stone of the cross would have been abolished. You see, Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews. You see, they must have. We know, actually, that they ignored and explained away passages such as Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. They were looking for a Messiah who would come with power and authority and establish an earthly throne and deliver them from the tyranny of the Gentiles. But that's not how Christ came at his first coming. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, both Jew and Gentile. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came as a lamb. But this message of God's grace in Christ crucified was a stumbling block to most Jews. Stumbling block, the Greek word is scandalon, from which we get the word scandal. But it literally means a cause of stumbling. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this stumbling they were also appointed. Wow. You see, they were marked out for this condemnation. They were a part of God's sovereign decree, yet they were responsible. Paul is saying in verse 11, if I preach circumcision, if I preach the law as a means of righteousness, the gospel of God's grace in Christ crucified would not be a stumbling stone 
for the Jews to trip over. But Paul did not preach the law. He preached that we are made righteous by faith alone in Christ alone, who was crucified in the place of sinners like you and I. Now notice lastly and sixthly, they were no different than the pagans. Verse 12, I wish that those who are upsetting you would even mutilate or castrate themselves. Paul is almost certainly referring to the cult of the mother goddess Sibyl. And it's actually, it was known in the ancient region of Phrygia. Male worshipers in this cult would castrate themselves as an act of worship and dedication to this mother goddess Sibyl. Actually, all of her priests were made self-eunuchs that way. But here's the idea. Paul is saying if the Judaizers are so keen on circumcision as a means of pleasing God, why not go all the way and castrate themselves as the supreme act of religious devotion, as the supreme act by which they could gain righteousness, earn God's favor? He is saying if they believe circumcision makes you righteous before God, you might as well castrate yourself like a pagan because that is what you are. You're a pagan if you add to the work of Jesus Christ. You separate yourself from the God of all grace, you see. Severed from Christ, fallen from grace. For any act or ritual in which you would add to the grace of God is to make yourself a pagan, religious, yet without God. And without hope. But it was not just the Galatians that needed to take heed. We must take heed. Certainly we must take heed. The elders of the church are the overseers. And we have a responsibility to guard the flock of God. But you also have a responsibility to watch out for those who add or corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also have the responsibility in response to the book of Galatians, in response to the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus alone, to take heed to that gospel. You see, there's a lot of people in this world that don't want to admit it. But folks, we are all sinners, and we are in need of God's grace. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, of his glorious standard. We've all broken God's law, and therefore we are worthy of death. That's the penalty. The wages of sin is death. No one has kept God's law. Therefore, no one is righteous. Have you ever lied even with a white lie? Have you ever stolen even something small like a pen? Have you ever coveted your neighbor's possessions? Have you ever committed adultery even in your heart? Have you ever put anything ahead of God? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? If you have broken the law in one point, you are guilty of all. You're a lawbreaker and you are worthy of death. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all worthy of death. 
We all deserve the judgment of God. Therefore, we're under the curse of God. But Jesus Christ became a curse for us. He took our place. He bore the very wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve. He is the eternal son of God. He lived a sinless life. He kept the law in my place. I could not do it. He did it. And so his righteousness through faith in him is given to me so that I am declared righteous and clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He took the curse. He bore the wrath in my place. See, he received my punishment. He received the justice that I deserve, and I receive his righteousness, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He never overlooked sin. There will never be one sin that will be overlooked. Not one sin will be swept under the carpet. Every sin will be dealt with. Either your sin will be dealt with in eternity by yourself, or it was dealt with by Jesus Christ on the cross. There are no other options. You see, this is a gospel of grace. This is a God, this is God's gospel. And it is received by faith alone, faith that repents from sin. It repents of our evil way. It has a change of mind that results in a change of direction by God's power. We we don't change direction by our own power. We don't become holy by our own power, but it's the Spirit of God that regenerates the heart. He gives us a new heart. He gives us, as I like to as R.C. Sproul said, he gives us a new want to, new desires. It is the Spirit of God in us that changes us, that transforms us. We are called to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his finished work. We are called to look to Christ as our Savior and Lord. So I challenge you today, we must beware of false doctrine. That means that We need to be in this book. We need to study. We need to meditate upon this book day and night so that you're like a tree planted by the rivers of water that protects you from false teaching, but it also empowers you to walk as Christ walked. It's by his spirit as we know the word that we are empowered to live for Christ. We must beware of false teachers. But we must also, if we have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, beware of the judgment of God. And if we are Christians, we need to run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. See, again, what does that tell us? It is God's gospel. It is all of him. We deserve nothing. We could never earn it. And we certainly don't deserve it. It is all to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.